Hello and welcome to this interview with author and contributing editor of Compact Mag, Nina Power. Thank you very much for coming in. No worries. Yeah, well, so Mary Harrington set me onto your book. Um, recommend everyone read it. It is very good. So I don't want to be typical like pretty much every interview. I'm sure you've sat through for this. But I have to ask the obvious question that's on everyone's lips at the moment as masculinity comes into the discourse. Um, why did you, as a woman, gravitate to writing about men? I think because fundamentally a lot of what was being said about men in the sort of public discourse was fundamentally untrue and I felt it was dishonest and sort of untrue to a lot of women's experience. So, you know, I come from a really loving family and like my father is a really good man who's sort of gone out of his way to be, um, you know, like a, a sort of quiet but sort of successful and peaceful and generous guy who has lots of great virtues and values. You know, my brother's a good man, a good husband, a good father. I have lots of great male friends and a great male partner. And, you know, I just thought that there's a whole lot that's being not just missed out, but sort of active sort of demonization of men, right? That was sort of creeping up in the in the culture and in the sort of liberal discourse around men. And I just sort of thought, well, it's just not true, you know, and actually fundamentally men and women have to get along. You know, we do get along most of the time. Um, and the background is also this kind of, it, erosion of difference between men and women you know like the the sort of weird idea that you can't say that men and women are different um, I think that's there's been a lot of pushback against that in the last few years but I think it was becoming really weird for both men and women the idea that like sex isn't real or mm. if it is you're not allowed to talk about it um, because it is and I think the men and women are you know profoundly different but that doesn't mean that we're not compatible um, or complementary um, and in fact, I think we sort of have to be because we all live in the world together. Um, so, yeah, those were the sort of two main motives, I guess. Well, I, I, I like the structure because as well, you seemed a lot more earnest and inquisitive. You weren't just asking men what they wanted. Uh, you were examining the reason for the contempt in the zeitgeist and also saying, well, we, we need to allow men to come up with their own solutions quite a bit. Because what I've noticed recently, and uh, we were speaking about this on the podcast yesterday, is that it feels like a lot of the time men can only have their issues enter public consciousness when parceled through the progressive filter if they want to be published in mainstream platforms. Like Christine Ember, for example, she's, she's become a lot more sympathetic. But in, in her recent article on it, she was citing Mitt Romney and Barack Obama as potential um, icons of masculinity. And she was lumping Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate in the same box. And, and it's, it's these presuppositions which soften the blow of saying, actually, our demonization of men for the last 10 years might have caused some of them to be miserable and depressed that allows it to be acceptable and palatable. But they often say, well, we can diagnose the problem, but we can't provide solutions. And what I actually really liked was, was your humility to say, I don't presume to know any solutions because I actually understand the ambiguous complementarity means I'm prohibited from it. But yeah. I, do, I do have a stake in wanting men to succeed. Yeah, no, no, completely. I think that's right. And, you know, part of my motivation also was the fact of knowing like three of my male, male friends. I talk about this in the chapter on male suicide, you know, mm. committed suicide. And I think is also coming to terms with that. You know, the stats around male depression and male suicide are just horrific, right? Mm. And it's like, none of us as human beings should want to live in a culture or a world in which that's true, yeah. do you know what I mean? So we all have a stake in helping each other and, and trying to 
work out what's going on such that there are these sort of deaths of despair and you know whether it's to do with class whether it's to do with purpose whether it's to do with value you know changes in the type of society and the economy we have where women seem to you know succeed better because now we're sort of post-industrial and it's all kind of knowledge base and language and all those things that women are sort of better at but you know I don't think a world that's like governed by women is better than the world that's governed by men it's going to be worse in different ways you know and the kind of damage that women do it has a different quality mm. than the damage that men do so I think again there has to be some of this complex ambiguous game and and the title of the book is like what do men want but it's obviously a joke right yes. because like I can't answer that question and it's also a joke, joke about about Freud because yes. Freud famously says or infamously says what does woman want like I don't know yeah. you know so it was like well what's men want I don't know so I do have a jokey list at the beginning where I actually got my my male friends to answer yeah. like with a one word answer and so they said things like beer a pussy um a shed Nigella Lawson Nigella Lawson yeah. Uh, well, at least you've got the good taste, you know. No, exactly. So it's like, you know, so there is an answer. Like, yes. there's a little list. Um, but yeah, of course, I, I think this question of humility is also about a sort of reverence for difference, you know. Like, so I think this frisson of difference and the, the, the playfulness between the sexes is also something that's kind of been eroded mm. as, as men and women are sort of forced into a kind of proximity through our culture, through, through um, our economy, where mm. we're all sort of doing the same jobs. And, you know, I was remembering the other day, like, you know, the dating apps. Mm. So originally there was only Grindr, which is obviously for gay men. And before they brought in um, heterosexual dating apps, there were all these articles in the newspapers saying, oh, this will never work for heterosexual women because women have a completely different attitude towards sex and dating mm. than gay men do. And they're never going to go for these apps which basically make all sexuality like gay male sexuality. Yes. And, and then sort of 10 years later, here we are, right? Like you have this incredibly depressing situation where like the apps are not working for anyone. Like I've spoken to women who've like, they're just sort of devastated by them really, you know, because I, I do think that um, our sexuality is different. And I think this trying to force everyone or make everyone perform in the same way and think that, oh, we all have to have sex, meaningless sex all the time is mm. actually like incredibly destructive and erodes our character. Um, but it, it's sort of really indicative of the fact that men and women are like basically being treated the same mm. and all of their differences are just sort of being um, railroaded and eroded, um, which I think harms both men and women, right? Yeah, well, if you treat us, them as just unisex, fungible, consuming right. units, then the emotions no longer matter. It's just you meet someone to bump bits with for instant gratification. It's like, well, that, that seems quite soulless to me. Well, it's like ordering a pizza or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, a bit of a disconcerting image. <laughs> I mean, but, they, but they were right in, in a way of prophesizing that the hookup apps for gay men wouldn't map onto heterosexuality mm. because they haven't. Like, they, for, a, for a period of time, they were hookup apps, but there was a Pareto distribution principle of the men that were getting matches and then following through and then sleeping with the women. Whereas I think it was OkCupid that released this data that said women rated 80% of men as below average attractiveness. And and just looking at the numbers, you know, 80% are not below average. That's that's nearly impossible. So there's there's some sort of perverse incentive there misskewing the standards that are being applied and it is leading to more and more women ending up lonelier and more and more men feeling that like they can't compete against the world for the attention of, of a woman they want. So, yeah, no, I, I, I really agree with, with, with how it's perversely set up. And maybe I wanted to tailor then into, into some of the structure of the book, because speaking of the sort of unisex liquidation, mm -hmm. um, Little Birdie told me that you were illich-pilled, direct quote. 
<laughs> and, and so when I was flicking through, I, I was surprised that the only reference to, to Illich was to uh, Tools of Conviviality, uh, which was his definition of, uh, of austerity, if I'm remembering correctly, which I, I haven't read, but I, I need to get through his library. And I did see quite a few sections of the book that sounded like they were tapping at some of his conclusions in gender. Um, just for the, for the sake of the audience, you did put... The modern individual is, in many ways, a neutral desex being. The differences between us are papered over. In most contemporary workspaces, it doesn't matter if a man or a woman does the job, although men still dominate the most perilous occupations. And it doesn't matter if a consumer is male or female, except if you're trying to sell them something branded, usually unnecessary as masculine and feminine. I think we need to start returning to thinking about men and women in terms of sex, rather than gender, where the latter is a stand-in for how people would like to be perceived by others. So, my, my question then is, You've assessed the the pressures of, of knowledge economy work, like de desexing us, um, but then it sounds very different to what Illich is saying via vernacular gender. What what do you think about yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. So the reason why I did that, I am Illich pill to use that language, <laughs> um, but I didn't want to sort of write a book about Illich, right? Yes. So no, I mean the fact that that I think many of the same things with or without Illich is sort mm. of like, that's what's sort of at stake for me. Um, the reason why I don't use gender in the way that Illich uses it is mm. because that term has become so confused. And, you know, there are at least two ways it's being used, one of which was like the second wave feminist way, where gender is a kind of social expectation that's kind of mapped onto sex, right? So the idea that if you're a girl or a boy, you must behave in these particular ways. Yes. And that's how we understood gender from that period. It was also taken from somebody like John Money, who's a really evil yeah. sexologist of the late 60s. Um, you know, and it, it, we could say there's a, it was a bad move, right, to use this term for anybody. Since then, however, gender has also become something slightly different, which is this like inner feeling, which mm. somehow is more important than sex, right? And that's what's undergirding the kind of transgender movement and genderism as a contemporary ideology. Illich, in his book, uh, mm. Gender from 1982, um, which he was cancelled for, yes. to use our contemporary parlance, by a lot of feminists, because they saw it as reactionary and traditionalist, um, uses gender in a third sense, mm. right, which is to do, like you say, with kind of separate spheres and tool use and traditions and almost like a tacit understanding that men and women had different roles so, to the extent that we wouldn't even talk about it, mm. right? And he talks about that as vernacular everyday gender. And then he talks about economic sex as being an invention of modernity. The reason why I didn't want to follow Illich's use of gender and sex in that way is because the other battle we're fighting at the moment is to say no sexual difference is real and yes. meaningful. So um, as a contribution to that discussion, um, and obviously like I'm gender critical, I've been denounced millions of times as transphobia, a turf and all of that. And I've been cancelled on that point for many years. Um, <laughs> but like the truth. Um, so I, I wanted to reclaim sex in the current discussion, right. as many of us do, because we want to say, look, human beings are sex. There are two sexes. You know, sex matters in some circumstances. Men and women are different and it's beautiful that they are and all of that sort of thing. So gender in that sense is not a very helpful term for us to use. Okay. Do you see what I mean? Because it's been corrupted to mm. mean, you know, oh, whatever my feeling is about you know, my, uh, who I am in the world. Basically, yeah. It, it's fractionated with intersectionality down to the level of the individual back again. Yeah. But then it's it's in a way which stratifies us rather than allowing us to 
build communities that, that give us some sort of sex solidarity. Now, I take your point, we need to rebuild some kind of embodied foundation before we can start right. negotiating norms again. Um, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but sort of wrapping back around to what we'd said before, um, th this, is, this, is the, this is actually the problem of, of tech and, and the industrial and sexual revolutions and the digital revolution and displacement, is that both gender in terms of custom specific to time and place and now embodied sex, thanks to yeah. swapping bits due to tech, have just been liquidated, and so it's it's not particularly shocking that we're we're no longer uh, as attracted to each other or or, or able to form relationships and, and the like again. Um, actually, then jumping jumping onto genderless persons, you had a you had a recent Barbie review that that went fairly viral because you had a, a very insightful take on it. What what was your read on it? Well, I think yeah. So my argument was um, that it's actually quite quietly subversive, right? So okay, it's, it's quite easy to dismiss a film about Barbie just a priori, right? Mm. Like, oh, this is a film about a toy. It's like consumerist, and you know, mm. it's going to be sort of um, trashy and da da da. And, Feminist and, trademark, as you put in in your first book. Yeah, like yeah. Fe feminism TM or whatever. Yeah. Like it's going to be superficially lib, lib femme, mm. you know. Like oh, it's going to celebrate like it's kind of very superficial idea of the self or something like that or. You know, um, but I think actually the director and the writer, like I think she co-wrote it with her p husband or partner yes. like this. And, you know, and she's like very well educated woman. Right. And she clearly was reading some of the discussions online about the manus, you know, in the manosphere mm. and also like kind of feminist responses. So that's kind of incorporated into the film. Um, and I think without sort of um, too many spoilers, probably most people who are going to see it have probably seen it at this point. But... I think there was a kind of um, slightly subversive reassertion of sexual difference and the reality of female biology in the film. Like there is a trans Barbie in, in Barbie world, but yeah. Barbie world or Barbie land, whatever it's called, is, is really obviously superficial and fantastical, doesn't really exist. And you don't have it in the, the real world. You have a transgender toilet mm. in, the, in the corporate office. But this is like actually a comment on woke capital, mm. right? It's like this is actually how superficial yeah. and like how, how these sort of supposedly revolutionary positions are actually just completely compatible, if not the ideology of contemporary consumer capitalism, mm. right? Because what's more, um, you know, capitalistic and individualistic than choosing your own body as if it's like a kind of, you're playing a computer game or something. Yeah. Selling you the prerequisite for your self-expression. Yeah. yeah. Making it conditional on what you can buy on how to express yourself rather than being authentic, embodied and, and beholden to something. Yeah. So, so, so from that then, especially from, from your reading uh, into men, I do want to jump onto the manosphere in a minute. Why do you think so many men ended up identifying with Ken? Because that's, that's the richest thing that's come out of it is all the memes of that, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, so Ken is sort of useless in the film, right? Ken just does beach, like yes. this is his job. It's quite funny and he can't even do that very well. Yeah. So he's kind of superfluous. You know, it's sort of Barbie's world. Um, everyone's a girl boss. But I think the, there's also a kind of critique of that as well, like that mm. kind of superficial representational, like this is what empowerment, emancipation looks like, mm. right? It's like you've got a, you know, a, a, every kind of Barbie, like a disabled Barbie, a black Barbie, Nobel Except Prize. all the Kens have to be in shape as well, which I found quite interesting. <laughs> there's a standardised Ken, but all the Barbies can be celebrated for, for plethora of diverse reasons. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess, you know, Ken is sort of deliberately and maybe always was sort of ambiguously 
a sort of gay or a eunuch. Like he's yeah. more like a kind of gay best friend. And of course, they can't have sex. They don't have genitals, right? There's lots of yeah. jokes about that in the film. So Ken is like a de-sexed man. He's like a eunuch, yeah. right? He may as well just be a pretty boy. And like that's mm. very, you know, ambiguous. And so, you know, and then, then so he discovers patriarchy in the real world and then comes back and tries to inaugurate a sort of um, Kendom, like his, yes. his sort of kingdom. Um, yeah, and it, it's, it's fairly funny. I know there are some great lines and, you know, the... The, the actor's very good, right, mm. playing this sort of um, newly uh, sort of revitalised, you know, sort of neo-pagan Nietzschean Ken yeah. who's like, you know, we're going to, you know, summon up this Kennedy like Thumos, yes. you know, like this masculine energy and like, you know, and then they sort of subdue all of the Barbies and they end up sort of bringing the Ken's beer mm. and so on. And, uh, you know, giving them foot massages. Um, no, and I, I, there is something kind of, yeah, it, it, of course, like attractive about this because we've all been dissexed, right? Mm. And so we're all dissexed and the world is very feminized. You know, our industries and everything, well, post-industrial is like, you know, people talk about the longhouse yes. and like <laughs> the idea of like, you know, it's a kind of metaphor and maybe people are using it incorrectly, but it's taken on a kind of viral quality. And I guess it's the idea that actually a feminized culture is one that prioritizes the values that women have or tend mm. to have, which would be things like safetyism, right? So what's opposed to safetyism? Adventurism. Yes. So there's no longer a world in which men can have adventures. Mm. I mean, I don't think that's women's fault, particularly because like men also, I mean, I always like, maybe this is a strange thing to say, but it's like, if men didn't want this world, why did they let women sort of, you know, <laughs> like yeah. take it over if that's what they think has happened yeah. so I don't but I don't think that's fully what's happened but I no. do think there are values that we can tie to the sexes right mm. and of course it you know there are men who are now very neurotic and into safetyism mm. right so it's not like and there are there are adventurous women right it's yes. not like those things can't be have a sliding mm. um, valence but you know when we talk about the feminization of labor or the feminization of society it's going to be that these things become increasingly valued and that they are going to affect both men and women mm. if you see what i mean um but there you know there are negative things about a totally male dominated world i sometimes think maybe we should have an amnesty and then men, if men say like can we have our gentlemen's clubs back yes and and women say okay can we have our sports back and stuff yeah. and can you help us protect our space and we, you do you know what i mean yeah this was like, this, this was this was mary's chapter let men be it's the case yeah. of the shed because you do you do need segregated men and women's spaces so that we can inculcate uh, through mentor figures more than anything, how to be embodied in our sexes and, and our, our relative virtues, and then we can come apart and then come back together. That yeah, was, totally. Like, yeah. I don't think we're designed to spend this much time with each other. No. Again, it takes the mystery out of it. And I've tried to say in various places, you know, like the the demolition of patriarchy, like we don't have patriarchy. It's bollocks that people say that, you know, what we have is sibling rivalry. Yes. You know, I, I really love that conceptualization. Yeah. Um, you know, and quite a few people have said this, like there's the Michalik book, which is from the uh, middle of the 20th century, um, just after World War II, sorry. It's like where he's talking about the death of the father. So he mm. writes this book called Society Without the Father. And it's basically like, what do we do? Like when we no longer have kind of strong male leaders and we don't have an idea of like um, a kind of masculine domination. You know, mm. we have a sort of democratic society, um, which may have some good things about it as well, let's be clear. Um, but I think it's like, you know, when people start going on about the patriarchy, it's like, well, actually, it's not really that anymore. And patriarchs were always about taking responsibility. It's not taking power. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like the patriarchs in the Bible are like those who have responsibility for families, right? Yes. So there's also an abnegation of responsibility because we're all basically like 
children running around going, I want this, I want that, you know, and not being committed mm. to things, you know, and that's a kind of consumerism as well. So, yeah, we're like brother and sister. Um, and that sort of, yeah, just eradicates um, difference, which I think, again, is like generated through the separation of the sexes. So I think it'd be really funny. We, maybe we could stage an event in which we have an amnesty where men are like, can we have this back? And women are like, sure, can we have this, you know? But it's all about kind of preserving yeah. our own. That'll be uh, Louise's next uh, maiden matchmaking event. I'm, I'm, I'm guaranteed that'll probably happen. Yeah. No. So, so, <laughs> funnily enough, when you were saying about the the inability to assert a patriarchy because it will miss elements of sexual compatibility, that that was the case with the the Kendom, I think. That, that, Mary actually asked me to explain. Okay, what is neoconservatism? Like, break it down for me. <laughs> And I said it's it's the philosophy of the only the only way out is through. Yeah. But the reason it was so fragile was because they were riding horses that weren't there, and that when they tried to when they tried to commit to their Barbie, they wrote her a love song, but they weren't even willing to admit to themselves that they wanted to be mutually exclusive and committed because they said you're my long term, low effort, long distance girlfriend. You know, you lads, you need to follow through on it. But a lot of these men are chestless in the C.S. Lewis sense. So they don't know even how to feel about this sort of stuff. They are the Elitian de-sex de man. So they need to become more embodied and then, you know, go, go through the motions a little bit, but do it um, non-performatively. And I think the lack of, of male role models, uh, father figures, particularly in the home and in culture, and spiritually speaking, I would say, mm. has, has de-sexed and uh, robbed those men of the replicable behavioural virtue archetypes that they can follow. And, and I, suppose, well, I suppose springboarding into that then, um, you, so you did a chapter basically on MGTOW. Mm-hmm. for quite a bit and I've had loggerheads with the manosphere for a little while mainly over I think a lot of them have a sort of ruthless Darwinian adaptation to the material conditions that have made men and women into this sibling economy and so I don't see them breaking the paradigm so so what's mm. your read on that situation yeah I mean so I tried to do a kind of comparison between men going their own way and sort of male separatism and like the lesbian separatism of the 70s yeah. which is like a weird thing to do but it's you know I think there is a kind of fundamental perhaps desire that we all have especially in a kind of proximate sibling culture at points to kind of just um be away from not take a break yeah take a break or to be away permanently you know like we in a religious society there is generally more room for that like you yes. can be a monk or a nun and, and you know you're devoted to christ and and to a different way of being and you mm. kind of explicitly renounce the worldly and that would include the opposite sex as mm. well as paying taxes um <laughs> so there is something always very attractive about that especially mm. if you're like illichian like you know the, the modern world becomes like very you know painful and the fact that we live in this very mixed world can be really difficult right the proximity so but men going their own way is sort of not exactly that it's, it's definitely doesn't seem to have a spiritual dimension it's more oh i don't want to play this game the game is that you know it's kind of like the red pill idea oh women actually run the world and that men are sort of being asked to pay for everything and they don't want to play that game mm. fair enough you know like if they think oh, I have to pay for the first day, I'm going to, you know, I'm doing everything in order to, like, on the off chance that a woman might yes. go for me. Then, of course, yeah, they, they, that looks like a game that, why would you bother playing it? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it's a very, um, you know, re, sort of um, limited position, right, in the sense that, I, as I try to say in the book, it's not a zero-sum game. And I think if we had different values or brought back values of, like, loyalty and, you know, like, my parents have been married for more than 50 years, Right, they still love each other. 
right? This is amazing, yeah. right? They got married at 23. And it's not that weird, right? This is only like, you know, one generation before mine, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what's interesting about that is the commitment, not only to each other, but to marriage itself. Yes. Right. So there's a triangle. There's like a third. You're committed to this idea so that like, let's say, even if you're having a bad time with your partner, your, your husband or your wife, you, you're actually both committed to a third thing. Mm. And that could also be a child as well. Right. Often. Um, and I think, you know, in a kind of post covenantal society, people just think of everything as like a business contract. And they take out the kind of religious or spiritual dimension mm. or the fact that there are values that go beyond the market. Right. So the idea, is, oh, we have a contract, we can dissolve it, you know, and you see that in its sort of apex form in the dating thing. It's like, oh, you know, it's like uh, like buying a product, you know, yes. it's just a fleeting thing. Doesn't matter, even though it does matter. Right. Because everything we do matters. I mean, this is another thing about getting older. You know, you, if you manage to get through the nihilism, <laughs> you know, the tendency or the yeah. temptation, you know, it's like, oh, suddenly everything matters. Do you know what I mean? And and I think people can, you know, whether they're religious or not, or, or become religious, you know, start to really, um, I don't know, everything sort of becomes more real and more vivid and, and everything you do and say has a meaning, mm. right? So that you hopefully don't engage in these forms of kind of meaningless activity, especially with other human beings, because you never know actually who's going to get hurt, for example. Like if mm. you have a fleeting relationship with someone and they fall in love with you, do you have an obligation to that person? Well, maybe you had a duty um, to not get in that position in the first place. You know what I mean? Like if you weren't up yeah. for a meaningful relationship, like it's unfair to expect everyone else to play along with your desire for nihilism. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I've, I, that's why I've always, keeping the show family friendly, um, <laughs> uh, uh, constrain myself from never being very casual with that sort of thing whereas right. I've known quite a lot of guys that have and, and, and during my university circle I know plenty of guys who are now in committed relationships who were keeping score so to speak of, of how many women they were hooking up with and I did just say to them at one point lads if, if you want a committed relationship down the road don't sell a woman love to get sex because she may become attached to you and then you've ruined her schema her faith in men yeah. and then you wonder why there are so many resentful feminists walking around in the world as emotional suicide bombers in that guy's life well well do you want one to come into yours you know you're, you're poisoning the well so to speak and, and that's the interesting thing about dating apps as soon as you as soon as you said that it, it lit off a light bulb in my head because we with the transactional nature of relationships we have torn asunder the idea of sentimental obligations to each other mm -hmm. just with the concept of ghosting okay well someone's attracted to you you swipe on them they swipe on you you're under the pretext of you're both looking for a relationship or affection you someone goes through the effort of making an approach to you you might even strike a conversation and then boom it's dropped and it's just because one party has decided to unilaterally end the contract but they haven't even given you the consideration of saying here's why so that your faith is retained in the system or in the opposite sex it may just be a problem with me they'll just disappear mm. and and there's no closure on that for some no. people and lots of people go through that no and I, yeah i mean these are kind of new new horrors that we've invented for ourselves yeah you very know? very ridiculous yeah, yeah, yeah like humanity is very good at this like yes. <laughs> Um, but it's totally unnecessary. I think this is like weird rush to do everything as well. It's like, well, actually, you know, if let's say if you took your time and you developed your character, and I'm talking about both men and women mm. here, because I also think that women have been sold a pup by the culture, but they also have responsibility to behave better as well, yeah. right? So, 
you know, women, if they have a tendency towards hypergamy, that's something we should know about and discuss, right? I don't think that women necessarily think of themselves in that way, like they're always looking for the better man or something like that. Mm. But in a consumerist world, or, or let's say the pornographic culture, where men are like, oh, well, what matters to me is like a visual economy. You know, I'm more interested in how a woman looks than mm. what her character is. And it's like we both have to develop characters, both men yes. and women. You know, and, and so if you take your time and if you develop your character and if you, you know, let's say you meet someone at 23 who you can imagine or whatever, 25, spending the rest of your life with or 30, you know, then it's better that you have waited and not sort of wasted your time mm. running around after other people who you might have hurt, you know, and that's a massive pullback from the sexual revolution. And I think, you know, we're 60 years after the sexual revolution. I think we've gone quite far down that path as, as humanity in the West. And I think the you know, the chickens have come home to roost. I think we can see what's bad about the sexual revolution. It's not this like free flow of desire. It actually has loads of unintended, perhaps negative consequences. And the kind of um, people that benefit from the sexual revolution are, I think the CAD is the number yes. one type. It's the, it's the man, and just to speak about men for a second, it's the man who is who doesn't need to be affiliated, who has no responsibility, no um, need to deal with consequences, can sleep with women because free love and contraception and whatever, and has no duty. And even, you know, we know that the pill doesn't stop pregnancies. Yes. You know, in fact, there's more because people's sexual behavior has changed in relation mm. to the technology. So I think you have a whole wave of um, women, but not only women, who are really pulling back and criticizing and looking at the sexual revolution. So you mentioned Mary Harrington, yes. but also Louise Perry has a very successful and interesting book, um, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Um, I think I would put myself as a kind of, you know, sort of neo-reactionary feminist. Well, you got lumped or, in by Helen Lewis into the yeah. reactionary feminist cohort, didn't you? Yeah. I, I think my approach, I mean, Louise um, and Mary are probably a little bit more pragmatic than me. They're mm. both also married with children. Yes. Um, and I, they, uh, Louise, especially, I think, is coming from more like an Evo psych perspective. Yes. She's using that language and of that discourse um, way of seeing the world, and that's not my metier at all. Mm. Like I'm much more on the sort of poetic side. Well, yeah, you're a philosopher, so yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I don't, I don't sort of dabble in the dark arts of these things <laughs> very much. Even where I, even where I can see that there is a truth in them, mm. if you see what I mean, right? I just, you know, I can see strategically why it's important to you know, where people are talking about hypergamy, for example, mm. in the manosphere, like some of these concepts have been taken out of their discipline and been used to, to speak more widely. Right. And you can't stop people doing that. And the internet has basically um, opened up a whole mm. field of knowledge that pe previously people were sort of keeping secret, yeah. whether it's about sex or race or whatever, you know, so like the I think the liberal floodgates are opening. I would say, because the internet has made it possible for forbidden or taboo knowledge to be discussed in mm. a serious uh, manner by people who don't have um, credentials according to the regime, mm. right? So I think we're also seeing the collapse of institutional... This is why I love Illich so much, because he's so profoundly critical of institutions in the sense that he has a theory of institutional collapse. Mm. Um, you know, he says the corruption of the best is the worst and everything like health or medicine or edu you know, education... Um, turns into its opposite. And I think we're seeing that kind of um, turnover in the institution. So universities are now no longer generally the place. There are still good people, there's still good work, mm. but they are not the place where knowledge and thinking is happening. Yes. Right? Well, they were, they were, they, the ideas were being inculcated, and this is, this is why I, I actually think your, your book serves a great purpose among the, the reactionary feminist pantheon. Because <laughs> um, I, I originally had conceived it of sort of 
Abigail Favale, Mary Harrington, Louise Perry, all of you I've had the absolute pleasure of speaking with as a kind of holy trinity. And then yours came in with, with the influence that ideas played on it, because a lot of the time, the, particularly Louise's book, is very material yeah. level of analysis. And what you've just elucidated there is that these ideas were brewing within the academy and, and within people on the margins that actually end up defining the mainstream. And then the floodgates were opened because the algorithms unleashed it and there were, there were tech changes, but eventually the, the, the tech changes legitimated the ideas that were their, were their precursor. Um, and now we're seeing the consequences of those ideas and something that, that you spoke about to Benjamin Boyce as well, which was a great analogy, I thought, and this ties back in with the dating apps thing, is that if the sexual revolution is like the French Revolution, then Me Too was like the... Terror. Yes, yeah. and, then, and then now we might be in the Thermidor age where the, the reactionary feminists are going, well, maybe we should hem in some of those problems and, yeah, reconstitute some normality. Yeah, and I think, you know, like we all have to be honest in our own lives and I think we have to be honest about um, ideological tendencies. It's like, you know, I, I would have positioned myself much more on the left yes. like 10, 15 years ago, but then I think the left went mental, you know. <laughs> and it's like, well, did I go mental or did the left go mental? No, the left went mental, mm. you know. But, but at the same time, it's like I think when we talking about feminism I think we have to be precise about what we mean because yes. there's also a way of like dismissing feminism as if it's one thing I don't think it is it has all these different waves there are lots of actually huge tensions in what we call feminism um, and I, d I don't like the too quick dismissal nor the too quick defense yes. right so I think if we're honest we have to say well maybe bits of second wave feminism that that moved into a liberal feminism went down some really bad paths mm and actually went too far in a certain direction. Um, just as I would say, like some sort of male misogyny, like maybe you can, un it's understandable. Like just as like, I don't know, some some women hating, uh, man hating might be understandable. The guys that have been dragged through the divorce courts have a righteous grievance, they might right. just not be expressing it in the right way. Right, sure. And so I think we, everyone has reasons for their position, right? Like, and everybody has a position, basically. Yes. And I think, the elite discourse basically tries to say repeatedly, no, most people are stupid mm. and most people shouldn't be allowed to talk about certain things and they shouldn't have access to certain knowledge. Right. That's how like elite knowledge production and, and retention works. And, you know, when we talk about the professional middle class uh, and these sort of gatekeepers mm. who are now like they're the people who've gone to university and they're like, no, we, the discourse belongs to us. Yes. Right. But they can't do that. Right. Especially in the age of the Internet, mm. because everyone has access in principle to everything who's mm. online. Um, and, you know, and we're seeing the erosion of that. And I think we're seeing the last uh, clinging on to people desperately trying to cling on to their status, yes. their unearned status. Those are all the misinformation bills that are being mysteriously passed in every country around the same right, time. Right, exactly. Yeah. So we have hate, massive hate speech legislation increase um, so that, you know, women are being talked to by the police because they've tweeted like men can't be women. Yes. Right. And things like this. I mean, it's like funny, but it's not funny. Mm. It's awful and authoritarian and it's... The fact that it's so silly. I think maybe totalitarianism was always starts off a bit silly. It's a bit like Brazil of where like yeah. it's the ultimate dystopic society, but it's also so farcical because everyone in it is a clown. And, and right. the system keeps pushing you <laughs> along to, to the, to the uh, intolerability of bureaucracy. Yeah, like the, the yes, that Terry Gilliman film. Yeah, yeah, yeah I wasn't no, talking about the country. No, sorry, I, was I know like, it's totally. Sorry, I was really confused for a second. Yeah, I was insulting like, oh. the entire nation of Brazil, I suppose. <laughs> sorry to our three Brazilian viewers. <laughs> no, 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 sorry. No, no, you're right. Yes, exactly. So the bureaucracy, like yes, 
Um, but I think we're seeing the kind of collapse of that. And also these middle class people desperately clinging on to their status. They don't want to sink into the working class. Yeah. And I think that explains a lot of cancel culture because it's actually like a way of keeping your position if you can eliminate the competition. Yeah. It's a very desperate bid. But um, This is the luxury belief thing that, yeah. that Rob Henderson keeps talking about. As in, These people often don't actually believe these beliefs, but they suffer no consequences for advocating for them. They just use them as a gatekeeping signaling mechanism to keep the non-university educated elite out of the club. No, and also, I mean, even worse, and to basically lose the jobs of people who dare to say, no, hang on, what you're saying isn't true. Yes. So, I mean, it's a weapon as well as just a gate, you know, it's a, like, a, not just a gate, but like a, you know, a bunch of arrows. Like, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a trap door, yeah, yeah, in many or, respects. You know, so, so, yeah, and I think a lot of people who've been cancelled or lost, you know, lost jobs and been ostracised one way or another, I mean, I think, you know, there will there will be a kind of reasonable reckoning, I hope, mm. you know, in the sense that all the women in particular who said, look, can we talk about this gender stuff? Mm. Even however reasonable they were, a lot of them were really badly punished, you mm. know, and threatened and, you mm. know, threatened with violence and rape and lost their jobs and, mm. you know, for being incredibly reasonable and saying something that everybody thought until five minutes ago. Yes. You know, so I hopefully, yeah, I'm, I'm on the side of a kind of um, reasonableness and mm. like a, like I think... You know, to understand that everybody, you know, has reasons for their positions. Everyone has different interests as well. That's the thing. It's like women's interests are not quite the same as men's. Yes. For well, example. So, so the interesting thing to, to hook back on that is the resentment of the trans activists against the the sensible women that have now been dubbed TERFs, um, the resentment of some of the manosphere types against what is seen to be a, a gynocratic culture. And you wrote quite a lot about resentment in, in your book. And I think this ties into your concept of the sibling culture, because if we are, like Illich warned, both unisex beings competing for the same resources, of course we're going to be antagonistic. Mm. And, and there was a, and I know you said pretty much everyone at Compact Magazine likes Rene Girard, um, said that to, to Ben Boyce. There was a recent really good breakdown of, of Girard's mimesis published in Contact, uh, Compact, which I'll, I'll put in the description. That was what sprung to mind when you were talking about that in your book. And I was immediately thinking, um, are there external pressures? We can't just blame men and women for for this mm -hmm. you know, upturning of each other's social order, are there these external mimetic pressures which cause us to be resentful of each other? And then the abolition of the spiritual father in culture means that we no longer have a depersonalised scapegoat. Instead, we just start get scapegoating each other as yes. sex communities. No, totally. And I think, the, you know, again, it's like maybe an age thing, but it's like the... Like modernity or presents you with this fantasy, perhaps presents us with this fantasy that we're somehow different from human mm. beings that lived 2000 years ago. Yeah. But we're not yes. at all. Right. So all of these fundamental things like envy and rivalry and lust and desire and, you know, they're still the same. Yeah. Right. Just because people have iPhones, it doesn't mean that they're not motivated by these deep anthropological things and indeed civilization is something well nothing other than the attempt to ward off violence at any given moment right mm. because we're, we're fundamentally like, prone prone to it yeah you the know, prevention of the these, war against all yeah yeah we, we you know and I'm not I'm not a Hobbesian exactly I mean I do think we're more cooperative and I think men and women are cooperative and they they can, they always have been otherwise none of us would be here that's yes. the beginning of my book it's like men and women exist sometimes we even like each other yeah. right because without that you know, like none of us would be here. I mean, of course, you don't have to like uh, each other to reproduce, but that's another story. But mm. let's say we would ideally prefer to live in relative peace wherever mm. possible, right? Because then we can kind of get on with things. We can protect our children. We, can, You know, I mean, let's not get on to the war question, but... Mm. 
we've we're sort of um how to put it those deep desires and those deep forms of rivalry envy and so on are still there and they have to be kind of modulated if we are to have a civilized world pressure release valves essentially yes and 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 so girard says of christianity that the sacrifice of christ is a preemptive scapegoat yeah right and it's a very clever apart from anything else it's a very clever social technology because it says you don't need to kill each other right the great invention is the the shift from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice right which you have in genesis already but you know, so that you don't kill the person who's annoying you. And, mm. and actually, the scapegoat is often not the person who's done anything wrong. It's just some random guy, yeah. right? Gerard said it could be anyone, right? Oedipus could be anyone. Yes. Um, so it's, it's nothing to do with like a fatal flaw. We all have those. Mm. But what Christianity does is say, you know, look, someone's already died for your sins. Mm. You don't need to do it, right? You neither need to be martyr nor murderer, right? You, need, you just need to accept that someone has done that. Mm. You know, and it's an attempt to ward off the the need for a kind of spiral of of retribution and violence. Yeah. You know. So so th- that what permeated through when I was reading that was, and it's funny you mentioned the biblical patriarchs. One of the most prominent Bible characters was the original murderer. It's the sort of spirit of Cain. Yes. And I can I can <laughs> that something Peterson has been repeating, if if not one of the people who coined it, and it's something that permeated through some of the manosphere types. Because they have been aggrieved by a family court system that's robbed them of their children. To- totally understand it. But then you see some people, when, whenever, uh, you know, we've made videos or articles before suggesting, well, men and women, maybe we should put our differences aside and get along. There will be some people that come out with misery loves company. And they will try and, and, and castigate everything as a class and say, say it's all over and it's, it's all burned down. Um, so I'm just trying to sort of parcel out how to generally overcome that animosity Mm. because I I don't think that without mentors and avenues for vocations whether that's fatherhood or whether that's like enrolling in the church if you if you if you can't have children uh, how how do we rebuild that solidarity yeah no no I agree with you and I I think there has to be um, you know Richard Reeves is very good on this I don't know if you've looked at his book Mm. I think last year of men and boys um, you know, this this thing about mentors and good men. I mean, I talk in the book, I don't make many practical or policy suggestions because it's not my domain. Right. And also, yeah, precisely like you said, I didn't want to kind of tell men what to do because that's not my job and, like, yeah. I can't do that. But it's I, it does seem obvious that with for anybody, without kind of positive role models, without ritual, without structure, without mm. kind of, um, you know, the possibility of being allowed to be better... Mm. Right then, then everyone is nihilistic, and everyone yes. is looking for someone to blame, and it's a zero-sum game, you know. And and like I say, like we all experience resentment, right? And there are women who genuinely resent men. There are men who genuinely resent women. Yeah. I think the pathological version of those things is relatively rare, however, right? I think there are very few true misogynists and very few true misandrists. Mm. I think what you have is a lot of disappointed people who have been encouraged by a culture to expect too much. That's the other thing. I mean, Mary Harrington's very good on this when she talks about abolish big romance. Yes. You know, because actually, if you make a practical decision, if you Mm. are like, well, I want to be this kind of person and have a family and, you know, I want to try and um, embody these values, and then you find someone who is sort of on enough on the same page Mm. who wants similar enough things, and okay, maybe they're not like a you know, a, a 10 on this horrible scale of yes. beauty or whatever, but they, 
but but then neither are you probably you know do you know what I mean like I think I'll everyone, try to take it personally I'm not you yeah, <laughs> one <laughs> but you know what I mean yeah. like one is not you know no one is perfect and yeah. in fact even those beautiful people are not necessarily beautiful people morally and you know there's no correlation necessarily I mean maybe there's a little but you know we, we have a very imagistic culture that is often especially increasingly like filtered and not really true right like if you want to ideally get married and have children then both people have to sort of work on themselves like they have mm. to become characters like no one is just oh i'm a good person and i get what i want yeah right if you if you think like that then you're by definition not a good person mm. do you know what i mean yeah and, and the perverse <laughs> incentives is the dating apps which is right. what a lot of people filter their their mate selection mechanisms through creates the the pressure to present a commodified superficial version of yourself to sell on the human meat market rather than like Illich with gender commitment being an unquestionable axiom of existence like your parents that, that third yeah. element so that when you have conflict breaking the bond is never on the table it's just always okay we're, we're, we're in this situation we work on it from here and we struggle nobly upwards towards a towards a higher ideal towards solidarity you know that, that and and so I, I'm I'm puzzling this over it seems to me that we've lost a kind of proximate distance to that that abstracted father figure, that that idea of we, we don't have to sacrifice each other or compete with each other, mm. we can mutually struggle. So is it the materialistic culture that's at fault, that's setting us at odds? Is it that we need to, a sort of different paradigm, changing what we value before we can come back together? I, it's a bit ambiguous, but... Yeah, I, I think the question of what comes after liberalism is on a lot of people's minds. Yes. And I think that, you know, what we're, we're looking at, I mean, particularly with some of the discussions around race is at the moment is maybe either a, if, you know, can we return to a sort of egalitarian liberal outlook that is, has at least formal equality? Or are we going to go down the woke racism route, which is like, you know, people are different and it's good and we need to do reparations? Or are we going to go down a kind of neo-pagan, uh, you know, hierarchical route in, you know, that's that's based around IQ or whatnot, mm. you know, and like... None of these things are particularly desirable. Like, at desirable, this point, yeah. right? Even the original one, the return to fresh prints idea, is how we got here. You know, the end of history, exactly. complacency, allowed was the fertile soil from which these these uh, critical race theory, war of all against all, sprouted from. Right, exactly. So, so the difficulty of saying, well, let's go back to I don't know, seventeen twenty or eighteen hundred or nineteen forty. Mm. Return or, with a V, yeah. Right, you know, like in a way, of course, exactly. Like liberalism, wherever we get to, we get back to here. Yes. I think in the first place, I mean, one of the, the really mind blowing difficult things, I think, especially if you come from the left, is 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 sort of learning to think qua soul or qua individual, because mm. in the first place, like, I mean, this is why Jordan Peterson is such a genius in a way, because to his very simple point about, well, actually, you need to sort yourself out first. Right. So mm. it's like, well, what are my values? What do I think? Mm. You know, and if you're kind of tied up with a politics that sort of tries to speak for you, it's like, yes. where is that coming from, actually? And then when it goes mad, you're like, oh, no, I'm trapped in a horrible cult. Yeah. You know, and then you have to sort of get out of the cult. Mm. Um, and, and I think human beings are very cult-like in the sense that we're always falling for one cult or another. And I think that's a realisation we need to understand and then pick a good cult, right, knowingly. You know what I mean? So, like, I mean... So, for example, like I go to church now, like yeah. I, I sort of from a very sort of heathen, atheistic, paganistic background to old lady coffee mornings, as you've tweeted e out before, exactly. which no, is the best so, bit. You know, so now I'm, you know, fully, you know, sort of a baptized and confirmed member of the Church of England. Right. Uh, and I, OK, I won't hold it against you. No, but this is the thing, you know, Anglicanism is like <laughs> incredibly like 
incredibly sort of um, mild, right? Yeah. Um, and but but maybe there's something in this kind of, you know, again very tricky, but a sort of um, lightheartedness, acceptance of of difference, and so on, without sort of going down a sort of mad fanatical left woke route, mm. or going down a sort of you know deranged um, robotic kind of we need technology to run the world, and human yeah. beings should be locked up in little pens or whatever. Like I don't know. Like there has to be some sort yes. of like lighthearted, moderate position. So. I, I don't know. I mean, I, my, my feeling at the moment is that we have to keep talking and, and dialogue is, of course, a very, well, it's both a very old idea in the West. You know, I mean, Plato begins with dialogues and, you know, this 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 very act of trying to clarify what we mean when we speak. Um, but it's also a kind of liberal value in the sense that, like, diplomacy and dialogue are kind of central features of liberalism. Right. And so but we also have people who are like, no, no debate. You know, you can't talk about these things. I also think it's it's that liberalism doesn't have a have a monopoly on negotiation. That's also one yeah. of the one of the and and this is what I think why the reactionary feminists have been created as a cohort is that they've recognised that that liberalism uh, has no ability to without a normative ethic undergirding it. Uh, like you call you call capitalism lock without God. Uh, it has no bulwark against the liquidation and commodification of everything to make it so that everything is a is an opt-in like it, it, ge gender's become the costume it's it's become the the customization options in a video game now and so what what we might need to do is ring fence certain things outside the boundaries of technology and commodification and also say we have to accept some of the worldly constraints of time place and body that that we exist in yes completely and i think it's difficult because we also have to get back to our moral intuitions, which have also been eroded. Mm. So, for example, like the disgust response. Yes. You know, and this is a tricky one because, you know, the one of the complexities about sort of judging other people or making kind of strict, um, you know, determinations about what we think is moral and what we think isn't um, is going to hurt a lot of people. Right. And liberalism has been very good at sort of saying, oh, no, well, if someone wants something, it's good. Yes. So. But I think, for example, you know, surrogacy would be an obvious one for a lot mm. of us. Like, this is just an immoral practice. And I think if, we, if you have a tragic worldview that says, well, not, you can't always get what you want. Like, not everyone will be able to have children. Um, and if you don't have children in a particular way, then you just, sort of just can't have them. You certainly can't buy them. Yes. You know, and that something should not be commodities. Some, something should not be on the market, as it were. That, that would include <laughs> children. It would include sex. It would include things that we would might want to resacralize. Mm. Of course, it's extremely difficult, as you say. If mm. you've gone, a culture has gone so far down a route. Mm. How then, and without a kind of, I don't know, like a sort of sacred authoritarianism or something or theocracy. Like, how are we going to get? Don't tempt me. Uh, <laughs> that's a joke, GCHQ. By the way. <laughs> how are we going? Like, you can't really. Yeah. You know, it might be that individual people will go. Well, okay, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to you know treat all my relationships like covenants and you know i'm going to try and be a better person and well, that might be the only thing we can do at this point to insulate ourselves from the collapse right i mean the, the, the this is part of the determination you made with with the etymology of um of 
virtue and virility. They come from the same yeah. stem. So it, it does have to, the, the revitalization starts at home. You know, you said, yeah. you said that the, the family is a kind of secret society to insulate the, the oikos from the polis. That's, that's the perfect, and, and those acid forces are definitely raining down on the family. I mean, Jeremy Hunt's childcare proposal, for example, is one of the most dystopian things I think I in haven't the world. even followed it. What did he say? Right, so he wants to state subsidize 30 hours a week of childcare from nine months to return women to work. All right, and right, that's, right. that's the interests of line go up GDP metrics, the commodification of everything, to ensure that motherhood is treated as an impediment to women's complete and total unisex workforce participation enrollment. And it's, that is the complete perverse way of ameliorating the birth crisis, the meaning crisis. You're just ratcheting us up to being, you know, agents and it, of the machine. And it also creates a lot of very anxious children. Yeah. Because childcare is, is uh, you know, for, it looks to be actually very bad for child development. Yeah, I did, I did about two hours on the, on the literature of this behind the paywall. I mean, one of the most disturbing things that I found, there was a meta-analysis in Science Mag, and they looked at blood cortisol levels. And if you have a child that's taken away from their mother in the morning, mm. they don't have, they're deprived of touch and, and voice, the blood cortisol spikes and remains that way throughout adolescence. And so that's actually an influential factor on lots of the anxiety disorders. And, and the, the toddler tantrums we're actually seeing now, as played out in the streets in, in many, many protests, where you've got people who are emotionally incontinent because they've been raised by an institutional system that is constantly henpecking them emotionally and not allowing them to, to um, healthily, especially young boys, express their conflict. They're, they're, they're equating, uh, this I, I had when I was at school, they're equating a kid that starts a fight and a kid that retaliates and defends himself as mm. equally worth of punishment. So you've, you've outsourced um, all of your independent negotiating capacities to, to the institution, the, the devouring mother over you. And, and so all of this institutionalization of care for the sake of market participation, for the sake of just endlessly generating abundance, isn't serving anyone. It's... No, I, no, it isn't. And like even in the book I wrote um, in 2009, One Dimensional Woman, where I'm talking about the feminization of labour, I mean, my position in that book is kind of an anti-work position, mm. which has been like maybe sort of a bit of a weird position in some ways, but it, it actually does include like not doing these things for the sake of the economy. It's like, why would you sacrifice your life and time and, you know, rearing your child hmm. for this machinic horror? Like, well, now companies know. are sponsoring out-of-state travel in the States to go and get an abortion so that you can return to the... That, right. That's just utterly dystopic. Yeah, and there does seem to be another agenda really at work because, you yeah. know, actually I don't think it really is about, you know, most people's jobs are, you know, the late David Graeber described them as BS jobs, right? There's so much work that people don't actually need to be doing. And I think a lot of the problem with our study is this kind of emphasis on action. In fact, if we did less, if everybody did mm. less, like if we spent more time just sort of sitting in fields and, you know, growing our own food or whatever, yeah. you know, again, I'm being like a pastoral return, you know, I'm being almost like a kind of primitivist or something. But there is a sense in which the more complexity we generate, the more complexity we create and the more yes. monstrous things we, you know, you can read sort of boring German sociologists from the 1980s, like the Ulrich Beck book, The mm. Risk Society, which is so beautifully boring as a book, but a very serious point. I, I, I'm being being unfair, but it's, you know, written in this very sort of, you know, that sort of way. But it, it's, you know, the, the more risk you create in a society, the more complex technologies and, and solutions you need mm. to deal with the risk that you've created. And yes. you create this kind of endlessly proliferating society. Yeah. And I think we saw the kind of pathological outburst or, you know, response to this in the in the lockdowns and the COVID thing, where you have this kind of society that's gone mad about risk and safety and can no longer make measured judgments and has just sort of gone demented. Yeah. And it also can no longer come to terms with its own finitude. But know? also, like, the fact that you could 
still eliminate a fair portion of the jobs in that economy and the world could still run. And that the revelation that the people that are making the world run are the people that are paid the least in order to deliver your essential goods to your doorstep while you sit at home with your laptop open but not actually working. <laughs> and, and then the BLM protests which happened in the middle of that, which were, if anything, a marker that our Maslow's hierarchy of needs of material subsistence has been met and now we are in a permanent recognition economy where people are hired just to make themselves feel good and they want to be validated as part of identity constituencies rather than holding any values, that, that's just that's a hellscape. I mean, yeah. we, we, we can't really break out of that resentment other, other than if we devolve back to having healthy practices that we don't value material goods over metaphysical ideals and that we, don't, we have to cultivate that virtue to, to recultivate that virility. Uh, yeah, completely. I mean, my friend JJ Charlesworth had a great tweet during the lockdown, and if you see it, it was like a viral tweet. He said, there is no lockdown. There are middle-class people sitting at home while working-class people bring them things. Yes, that was very much my, my dad. So my, my dad, the reason he was never scared of it was because he does vents and plumbing, and so yeah. he's always on call. And he was going in hospitals and walking around, and they didn't ask him to have a mask, they didn't ask no. him to wash his hands and that, because he had to fix the filters. It was a filters. hysterical and very dubious thing in many, many ways. I mean, it was yeah. absolutely you know, terrible and counterproductive and has obviously caused huge amounts of health and mental health problems for loads of people um, and so on. And, you know, just absolute destructive um, thing to do. Um, but I think it's indicative of having that free-floating lack of a scapegoat hysteria yes. of where you suddenly had the term refusenik, which is an anti-Semitic term ginned up by, by the Soviet Russians, applied <laughs> to Jews that were pogromed applied to people that didn't want to be vaccinated. Yeah. And, and so we're, what we're seeing is this disembodied spirit of antagonism that is being redirected to men and women, yes, but it's also being redirected on the race issue. It's also being redirected on the lockdown. It's just not healthy. You're right. And I think from a Girardian point of view, we could say that the scapegoat mechanism, because the Christ, you know, because we're in a post-Christian age and, and, you know, the sort of Christ sacrifice doesn't hold anymore. Like Girard says, the law was supposed to replace religion, mm. but the law doesn't work for people either. Most people don't have access to the law. Like if, if, if somebody defamed you, for example, it'd be very difficult for you to have enough money yes. to, to challenge that, right? We don't have a civil um, accountability mm. in that sense, right? So, so the law is basically out of access for people and the, the police force have gone mad. They're just sort of arresting women for nasty tweets or you know do you yes. know what i mean they're, they're doing terrible things they're, they're completely captured ideologically um meanwhile like actual crime is not being dealt with at all and you know we see that in america like total collapse of cities and um so what we're seeing i think with the scapegoat mechanism yeah it's like a new scapegoat mm. like we're speeding up the scapegoat thing so it's like yeah the unvaccinated or mm. white men or yes. whatever we just kind of go around this little carousel or turfs or yep. you know so it's like who are you allowed to hate like the two minute hate thing is like mm. really accurate because that's exactly what's happening mm. like you can hate this group now you can hate karens you can hate uh, gammons you can mm. hate you know do you know what i mean incels yeah yeah, yeah incels yeah. and like, none of the labels are ever accurately applied yes either. it doesn't matter it doesn't matter Right. So I tried to write about intels and, and the way in which they're absolutely demonised as a category of men you're allowed to hate. Yep. You know, And I think this is the fundamental mechanism. It's like, who are you allowed to hate? Right. This is the question. And the people you're allowed to hate, if you're a good person, according to contemporary ideological regime morality, mm. are people who themselves hate or we've designated as haters. Yes. You're allowed to hate them. Yes. So you're allowed to hate. 
turfs because they hate trans people. You're allowed mm. to hate, you know, racist gammons because they hate anyone who's not mm. white, allegedly, right? None of this is true, however, yeah. right? But it doesn't matter because you're allowed that sort of gleeful, joyful, righteous hate. Yeah. You know, and, and I think this uh, is, we've you, got to understand this. You've, you've also, in order to have that function, you have to outsource your discernment again to the bureaucratic engine that is constantly expanding to justify its own existence. It's, it's the calcifying managerial clause. With the idea of the law, for example, if you don't have a, uh, a moral code undergirding all of these disembodied forces like commodification, like, like legal contract enforcement, one, you're just going to get the laws increasingly proliferate to counteract other laws. And so it's going to require an expert managerial class of professional interpreters to divine that for you and therefore you yeah. need to start paying for it. So it just keeps growing. And then if you're reliant on the law, then people will just do whatever they can up until they face consequences from the law. And the law will only be applied as long as people with the prerequisite morality when the law was written are there to enforce it. Well, if, if you hollow out the morality of society and you just have a social contract, what happens when the social aspect of the contract stops being enforced? You get the same thing with the uh, relationships that you were talking about earlier. If nobody has any consideration with each other, then you can just break the contract without thinking about how it might, might, might make the other person feel. And that's why the, the self-expressive marriage or, the, or cohabitation's gone up massively, mainly because of economic circumstances. Mm. But people are having less intimate relations, less children. Marriage rates are only among the wealthy because they're just bonds of convenience. And until you don't have a sunk cost to, to, or, or face a consequence from se severing that bond, you go right back to being the atomized individual again. Mm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just sort of parceling out, trying how to, how to re-establish the sentimentality we've lost. For sure. I mean, I think we have to appeal to what is rigid, re residually apparent, which, mm. are, which are going to be things like our conscience and our body, yeah. right? Like, these things do still exist, right? However eroded, however kind of fragmented they are. And that's why I think, you know, the attack on sexual difference was more than that. Like it was a really profound attack on culture itself and civilization itself. Because if you say we're going to deny this fundamental truth that's been a constitutive feature of our shared reality for hundreds of thousands of years, mm. you know, then you are attacking reality itself, mm. right? And I think that's why sexual difference is such a key one. It's like if we can get people to lie about this, yes. Then we can get them to we can break their minds you know again very orwellian point but it's very true mm. you know if people feel compelled are compelled to say things they don't believe out of fear for their own lives or their jobs or the their family's uh, well-being um you then you control those people you know and i think so the preemptive rising up and saying no we're not having this like even at great cost to a lot of people you know and we're not talking about people being killed or rounded up, right? But we are talking about a process whereby those people who stand up are ostracized, who have economic, suffer economic costs. You know what I mean? It is a kind mm. of um, gradual slope. It's, it's, it's ratcheting. And also it's ra ex yeah. exile in the ancient world was a form of punishment. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and it's very weird in the age of like social media to be ostracized. Like, yes. it, and it's also very strange, you know, if you, like I don't do this anymore, but like if you search your name and you just sort of see all this stuff about yourself, it's like, you're like, it's almost like a personal stock market. It's mm. like, how is my, <laughs> like, yeah, like, how's my reputation idea. trending today? Yeah, you're like, right. Like, oh, I've gone down like 73%. You know, and it's absolutely awful, right, mm. to think of yourself in this way. And, you, you know, people are sort of saying these things and you're like, well, I don't think that. But this is part of the recognition <laughs> economy, exactly. And, and so, yeah. and so this, is, this is why I think you get so many people, the, the sort of doomer optimists, almost cheering on a collapse because they're thinking, 
how do we achieve escape velocity from these perverse incentives? Well, if we're in the industrial paradigm, we've got all these material conditions met, and now it's just making everyone a kind of narcissist vying for the same limelight, then do we need to uh, have some sort of Luddism of technology? Or is it just going to take a kind of continent renunciation of things like the birth control pill or just getting offline? Yes. I mean, I think in the first place there has to be a moderate pull away, right? Yes. Like, so I think, you know, for example, the reactionary feminist position on, on something like male chastity, which mm. sounds kind of really punitive and unfair, but it's not celibacy, but it's like control of male sexuality. And again, control yeah. of male sexuality by men, by yeah. the way, maybe through civilizing technologies like marriage, mm. um, is, is also for like for everybody's sake, including men's sake, right? Yeah. It's also you know, just like, put the porn down, it's made by people that hate you. Exactly, I mean, porn is very obviously at this point, I don't, it's not really um, um, a matter of, we need to do more research. It's very obviously extremely damaging. Yes. You know, it just is very, very bad for men and therefore very bad for women. It's very bad for marriages. It's very bad for society. It's, you know, it's just a, a bad thing. Um, you know, it does sort of terrible harm, especially to people who become addicted to it. Um, just like any addiction, like, you know, we have a society that encourages, you know, I've had addiction issues. Like I know so many people who have, it's, we live in a culture that basically sort of de facto allows you to go down a path if you like want to eat too much or drink too much or... You're not harming anyone except right. yourself. And, but you are, you're harming yeah. everybody around you, you know, and it, and actually the left position on addiction is absolutely terrible. It's just like blame capitalism or, but you know, oh, it's not your fault, you're unhappy. It's like, well, actually you do have a say in it. You don't have to keep doing this thing, which is extremely negative and is gonna kill you and is at the very least harming you and everyone around you, do you know what I mean? Yes. So I think there has to be at least in the first place a kind of like, you know, firm but gentle moral reckoning in terms of our own behavior, our own honesty, our own, you know, coming to terms with ourselves, our own values and the values of those people around us. Um, you know, I think the church is a good place to, like, to be, actually, in terms of also um, a kind of loving recognition of others who mm. you wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with you know like I go to my local church and I, I'm friends and, and we're in a communion and in a parish with people that I would otherwise not know mm. you know in my local area and that's something amazing about that like there is a kind of pre-existing network uh, you know that exists it's there already we have the buildings we have the people you know so I think there is something kind of quietly subversive or you know <laughs> counter-revolutionary in the in the church potentially um but yeah and i think i don't, I don't know how to put it like the, the yeah that gentle pulling back from the excesses of a liberal culture is the first step um and then i think you know to have a, a honest conversation about what happens next you know because i don't want to be governed by high IQ people who think that robots and technology is the solution. Yes, we don't want the World Economic Forum no. bugmen pod people future, no. And, and so what it, what it sounds like really is the revival of the spirit of the stern father who tells you what isn't good for you and these meaningful avenues of responsibility and vocation that make you a man or a woman is the only thing that will stave off the spirit of Cain which is driving all of these revolutionary movements that are tearing civilization asunder. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I quite, I quite I, like yeah, that framework. But I think maybe, it, yeah, you're right, it's, it's the stern father, it's the loving father, it's the stern but loving father, but in sort of 
you know, in relation to the mother and the, you know, Absolutely. as well. And I think this is the really difficult thing because I think a lot of male resentment and a lot of the trans movement is driven by a kind of envy and hatred of women. And also, like, sometimes I really even think at the level of existence, like some people are just so upset that they've been brought into the world that they seek to blame, like, their mother because, you know, or the figure of the mother because the mother is the one who gave birth to you. And it's like, you know, I didn't ask to be born. You know, so I think that kind of resentment against women is sometimes really deep. Like it's, you know, this is what Greek tragedy and all these things are, are about, right? Mm. Like these kind of fundamental things that we can't really discuss because they're kind of taboo. You know, psychoanalysis tried to discuss them. But, you know, and how do we come to terms with, you know, Freud talks about penis envy, but I think we also have to think about like an envy of women in an age of proximity, you know, so where these men are looking at images of women constantly, and a lot of it is porn-induced or broadly induced by a pornographic culture. So it's like, well, why, does the, why do these beautiful women have so much power? You know, and there's an envy of that perceived power, right? So even if women don't have physical strength, they have seduction, they have beauty, they, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, they well, this, have... is, this is the idea that, that this is the in, insult of the existence of patriarchy. It's like, okay, you, you think women never had power? I mean, they right, gave exactly. lots of men the prerequisite motivation to innovate and build civilizations, to stave off privation, to keep their dependence safe. And that was very meaningful for men. But it's also, and this is, this is something that, that Nora Vincent wrote about in, in Self-Made Man, um, which I, I, you, you sent me some resources that there was a, essentially a French woman that did the same thing in, in the 1900s as well, which I need to look into. But when she was masquerading as a man and going up and approaching women cold in a bar, she said she found herself beginning to get resentful of women because of the gorgon-like stone stare that lots of women would give men who had earnestly put their heart on the line and tried to speak to them. And they would try and shortcut their way out of the conversation. But it's also understanding as a man as well, and this is where the solidarity come from, is that... Women are risk of us, understandably, because there are some men out there who are brutal. There is a physical difference. And if you were walking around with a transparent briefcase of a million dollars all the time, you'd be wondering if people were just talking to you for your money. So we do, we do have to, like, the embodiment is the prerequisite for that ambiguous complementarity and that mutual respect. So we, we do need to sort of like disambiguate our resentment from the devouring mother figure or the patriarchal father figure and actually recognise each other's relative struggles? Um, for sure. And also, I think, you know, if you had a differently organised society, there wouldn't be situations in which people are sitting in bars, uh, you know, having conversations. Do you know what I mean? You'd have the interfering aunties bringing well, you together. Well, you might do. And I mean, you know, you might have at least more advice. You might have older people going, well, I don't think he's a good match or, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, yes. what's wrong with that? Like, you know, we're so far down an idea of like, oh, the individual knows best. But that's just manifestly not true if you look at divorce rates, right? Mm. Whereas if someone had said, you know, all your friends and family had said, oh, here's this guy or here's this woman. You know what I mean? You know, it's not exactly arranged marriages, but, you know, but actually they have very um, low divorce rates, arranged marriages, as far as I understand it. But you know what I mean? Like we've gone down this existentialist, I choose you, blah, 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 love, you know, as this very narrow idea of some kind of fantasy. It's mm. a romantic fantasy. Um, and it doesn't work out often, hence the resentment. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think there need to be fewer maybe ambiguous situations because they're not fun for men or for women, right? It's not fun for women. It's really actually very difficult if, if a man is being quite, I mean, I'm too old and, you know, attached to this sort of thing, but 
you know, when men speak to you in a way that is earnest and trying to get to know you, but you sort of don't want to, it's actually, it's actually really difficult and awkward to say, like, oh, thanks, sorry, no you know, yeah. because you also don't want to hurt people's feelings, and it, but then you leave things ambiguous, and, yes. you know, that's difficult too, you know, and I can see how that's all horrible for men, like, people talk about being friend-zoned and... You know, like there is too much ambiguity almost. Like I love ambiguity mm. in literature and stuff, but like maybe we could have less ambiguity. I, I think actually I noticed <laughs> this the other day that the sort of friend zone discourse disappeared in the last fifteen years. Oh, has it? Yeah. Because I'm too old to. I, well, no, I just don't. I don't really hear as many comedians making jokes about it, and I wonder if it's because. And and mm. and Chris Williamson made this tweet the other day from some data from Date Psych. Fifty-five percent of men have said they haven't approached a woman in the last year. Right. Yeah. And yeah, this yeah. might be the the revolutionary terror aspects of me too definitely warding them off of false accusations or yes. or and and so now it's become an axiom of gender to not approach someone that's true that is true and i think yes the i can understand that and also all this legislation being brought in workplaces i mean people used to meet their spouse at work yeah. and now who is going to approach someone at work i mean the immediate you'd just be too scared to for fear of harassment case or you know do you know the bureaucracy I mean? intervening yet again yeah. exactly and we've created all this hr monstrosity mm. to give people jobs and they yeah you know <laughs> interfering more no. busybodies so 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 is is the disestablishment of this soulless kind of contract that isn't really serving anyone and nobody gets a good deal out of it the return to the consideration for each other, not not with the self-expressive marriage, not with the marriage of where you complete mm -hmm. me and we'll cohabitate and we can, until we can find a better option, but a sincere and sentimental attachment to someone with commitment as a foundational axiom, and then everything will spring from there. Well, yeah, I mean, this is why you know God, as presiding over a marriage, you know, makes sense, right? Mm. Because it's like. You know, unless your marriage is sanctified, then it is just an arrangement, right? Mm. Like everything else. So yeah. you can see why religion dignifies union. Yeah, well, that's what, that's what C.S. Lewis wrote about love. He said that, that your love can never be excessive for your partner if it's always in humble proximity to the highest and first progenitive love, which is God. And I always think that's a, that's a nice way to even conceive of yourself. Because if you're, if you're aiming upwards with momentum at a higher ideal, but you know that you can only ever... Um, emulate it but never fully embody and displace it you avoid that Promethean arrogance that allows you to commodify everything that makes you resentful that that feels like you were robbed of your place in Eden and therefore you need to revenge yourself on your brother or your sister I, I think that's probably a better way of conceiving it you you might well find it in your local church at, at your coffee morning yeah <laughs> so so to, to conclude then to bring it right right back round um what on earth do men want because apparently there's going to be a minister for men soon. Oh, and really? so And so, well, there is a minister for women, and, and I believe the women's minister suggested we might need a minister for men to address the suicide rates and the like. Yeah. So, all right, what, what's your sales pitch for why they should listen to you? Well, I, I mean, in the spirit of humility, uh, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think anybody should listen to me. Uh, I don't always listen to myself either. Well, I've enjoyed it, so... <laughs> but, um, yeah, I okay. So, well, I think we... We both don't know everything. Like, men don't know everything, women don't know everything. And, and I think part of the resentment is imagining that the opposite sex somehow does, that the opposite sex has all the power or has all the seduction or has all, you know, has all yes. the control. And that's a mistake. I think both men and women are, you know, they are in a different position and they might have a different relationship to the universe. And, and it's in our interests and curiosity and delight to try to understand what it's like to be 
um, the opposite sex without wanting to be or to destroy the opposite sex. So I think we need to sort of uh, maintain a kind of playful, like, uh, you know, curiosity and a sort of... Um, a bit of attractive mystery. Yeah, sort of lightheartedness as well. And I think, yeah, some of the terror has come from precisely people not being able to be lighthearted anymore. Like, people make mistakes, you know. I mean, people sort of try and kiss each other or whatever, and it's, you know, that's not a crime. That shouldn't be, like, something that you can punish someone for. Do you know what I mean? Like your, some... your, your term was um, uh, puritanical near <laughs> yeah. the start, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, what, was, what, was, what were the constituent elements of that phrase again? So, so prurient, as yep. in like kind of unduly interested in, other, in sort of other people's sex lives yeah. with puritanical yes. at the same time. So like judgmental. So like we have a culture that's super saturated in sex, but the moment someone gets it slightly wrong, yeah. then they're kind of like, you know, me too'd or denounced or, you know, severely punished. Mm. Even though the culture is sort of constantly saying to people, oh, you should be having sex all the time and sex is what makes you a person. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, it's completely hypocritical and insane. And, you know, I've, I've known lots of people who've been really badly punished for, for what are not um, intentional, you know, malicious actions, but perhaps misunderstandings or mistakes or, do you know what I mean? Or, yes. And And sometimes people can clumsy regret. Clumsy advances, yeah. Yeah, clumsy advances or, or even sex that was sort of, or, you know, an, an encounter or a relationship that was sort of at the time mutual, but maybe not a good relationship. And then people are looking back and saying, well, that was abusive. And it's like, yeah. well, no, actually, it was just a bad relationship, you know, and you were both assholes, you know, as we can all be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so less assholery, a bit more forgiveness. That that might be helpful. So, obviously, you're you're not a you're not a policy person. But what about individual lifestyle approaches that you can take to rebuild solidarity and maybe insulate yourself from a collapse? Well, I think we we've discussed quite a lot of them, and I I think in the first place, looking after yourself mm -hmm. for both men and women, so that you can better look after others. You know, in the first place. So. I think we're often presented with this idea that, oh, if men work out, not only are they like far right fascists for looking after themselves, which is one liberal discourse, which is completely insane. Yep. Um, you know, I think people should look after their health. I've been very unhealthy in the past and I got healthy and, and you know, my thoughts and my whole way of being in the world was healthier. Mm. You know what I mean? And it changed my ability to, to be nice to other people and to help other people. Like it was really transformative. And I think we're still stuck in a mind body split. Like, you know, they're, they're not separate. They are the same thing. They're two different ways of looking at the same thing. So I think we have to look after ourselves as best we can, you know, the better so we can help our family and friends and our partners and loved ones and so on. So I think that's really important. So, yeah, like trying to maintain sort of physical, mental, spiritual health um, in the face of like a deranged, chaotic world that's sort of trying to like destroy you and, mm. you know, make you buy things you don't need or want. Yeah, so, so buy less, <laughs> grow your own vegetables, <laughs> if you can. work out... <laughs> Go to a coffee morning and, and chat to the old <laughs> ladies, then maybe you might become a parent and you might die happy. Well, I think, yeah, also, like in terms of the dating thing, like if you meet someone, like let's say you do an evening class or you go to church or you're studying or, you know, you take up a martial art or something. If you meet someone in that context through a shared mutual interest, yes. like that's so much better than like the dating app, which puts so much pressure on people to like, oh, you know, will this be the person I want to go, go out with? You know, but I think meeting someone in a more localised way through a shared interest is seems so much better. Yeah. You know, even if you don't have all of the family and friends going, have you met this person? Yeah. They might be really nice for Yeah, you. also involve your family and friends, get their <laughs> advice, and maybe just commit rather than listlessly looking for attention and potential online. 
Um, yeah, for sure. And I mean, again, like the distraction of modernity and like the technologies. I mean, they, you have to we have to remember these things are designed to keep you there. Yes. You know, dating apps are actually not designed for people to to have lengthy and loving marriages. Mm. They're designed to keep you on the apps, like yes. gambling apps. You know, they are a form of gambling. And I don't think we should be um, engaging in them. Though you know, gambling is also not good. Mm. <laughs> it's another thing that's very addictive and that human beings are prone to. Um, so yeah, I think like everyone needs to like chill out, slow down. She says at nine hundred miles an hour, speaking very <laughs> fast. But you know, that kind of like, you know, acceptance and serenity, and um, you know, if you go to any of these twelve-step programs, a lot mm. of it is just basically people going like. Just yeah. chill out. Like, yeah, it's, stop it's doing stuff. <laughs> the serenity prayer of you, you have to surrender the things that you can't control. So, yeah, it's, it's also conceiving of yourself in proximate distance to your ideals and not thinking the entire world revolves around yeah, you. Yeah, we're not gods, you know. I mean, this is the mistake. This is the Promethean mistake you mentioned, you know, the idea that we can control everything and solve everything and fix everything. We just generate more problems. You know, we didn't create the universe. Like, we are, you know, this finite, limited, humble, hopefully, creature who, you know, has a short amount of time and we can either sort of use it really destructively and badly and nihilistically and mm. selfishly or we can sort of, you know, be a, be a bit slightly better. Yeah, and also, also curb your desires because otherwise they will end up owning you. So having, having, having less things to own might end up making you own yourself a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, like, maybe just to finish, but my favourite sentence on this is like, um, you know, you're not punished for your sins, but by them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. That was really nourishing. Uh, I, I advise, if you aren't already convinced, somehow uh, go and get the book. What, what actually, what's the story behind the cover art? Uh, I don't know. They just did it and they said yes. Um. <laughs> Mary said the same thing about her, her American one where they said, yeah, they, they just put knitting unravelling in it because they wouldn't I, let me have the, uh, with Diana with the laser eyes on it. Yeah, it was just like a, I don't know. I was it's, like, it's, it's, the, it's the new sort of book design philosophy. Anyway, the contents are bloody brilliant. I so. mean, look, I, I have to say, you know, it was a surprise in the end that Penguin put it out because it was not the book that they wanted. Um, and well, I can imagine because it has uh, contentious moments. Yeah, and a lot of people tried to cancel it, um, yeah. and you know it was under siege, despite being, I think, very milk toast and moderate and reasonable. Yeah. It, but being reasonable is like, at this point, I don't know, somehow extremely subversive Sacrilegious, to big yeah. publishing houses and to the regime in general. Yeah. So go buy the bulletproof book, basically, <laughs> and and thank you very much for coming in, Nina. No, right. thank you. Carl. I really appreciate it. And for all of you, until next time, thank you very much for watching and goodbye.